promises. The Bible is filled with God's promises. And I'm happy to inform you that the majority of these promises are beneficial blessings that God has promised to give to every believer. For example, God has promised to save those who trust in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but God has also promised to provide for those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God has also promised to empower believers with his Holy Spirit. And he's also promised to fill our hearts with his perfect peace, providing we keep our minds stayed on him. Without debate, God has presented us with many wonderful and marvelous promises. At the same time, God has also presented us with a few promises that, well, we'd rather he didn't. Uh, This most certainly includes the promise that Paul presented in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's verse 12 where we learn that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's what Paul promised. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will end up suffering persecution. And I can guarantee that you've never seen that cross stitched into a pillow and on sale at Lifeway. You won't find that promise on that pillow. No, we don't, we don't like this promise, do we? I'm sure we all wished that Paul actually promised protection from persecution. That's the kind of promise that we want, right? But that's not what he said. No, instead, he assured us that those who truly live their lives for the Lord will suffer the persecution of those who hate our Savior. Now, with that being the case, we're going to spend our time today considering the promise of persecution that we find in the scriptures. And we're going to consider this promise so that we might learn what to expect and how we ought to respond to those who fulfill this promise by persecuting us. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll first begin to see that the persecutors of Christians, they want to shame the saints of God. Secondly, we'll consider how the persecutors of Christians also want to shun the saints of God. And thirdly and finally, we'll learn how the persecutors of Christians want to silence the saints of God. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul presenting this promise of persecution. And as you make your way to the second chapter of of, uh, 1 Thessalonians... Well, I just want to take a moment to put this text back into its context. It'll help us to remember that Paul was commending the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica for the way that they had received the truth of God's word. And not only that, but Paul also acknowledged the way in which the word was effectively changing the lives of those believers. Yeah, their lives were changing as they embraced the truth of the word. Unfortunately for them... Well, those changes ended up attracting the attention of those who began to persecute them. And it's here in our text today where we find Paul. He's now helping them to understand that this is actually par for the Christian course. With this as the focus, let's pick up our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 14, here Paul declares, For you, brethren became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men. 
forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's commending the Christians there in Thessalonica for the way that they were persevering the pain of persecution. They were persevering those who were persecuting them and seeing how their persecution was precipitated by their commitment to Christ. Listen, they could have avoided this trial of torment. They could have avoided the persecution by simply pretending to be just like the rest of the unbelievers there in Thessalonica. They could have avoided persecution by just acting like their life hadn't changed. They could have just gone about worshiping the the same heathen gods that the rest of the unbelievers were worshiping there in Thessalonica, but they didn't. No, instead, they continued to follow in the footsteps of the faithful believers who were also being persecuted back in the land of promise. They continued to follow in their footsteps, and as a result, well, they were persecuted. Let's take a closer look at the way that Paul put it here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You would look with me again there at verse 14, because here Paul declares, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. As we consider the way that the Christians there in Thessalonica became imitators of the believers there in Judea. I want to consider the meaning of this word imitator, and I get it. Some say imitator, some say imitator. You know, just, it's up to you. But, uh, but the original Greek word translated imitator can also be rendered follower. They were followers. This is the same word that Paul used back in chapter 1 where he commended the same Christians for the way that they, they became followers or imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, they received the word of God with much affliction. Now here in uh, this verse today, we learn that they were imitators of the Jewish believers who were also suffering for our Savior back in Judea. Now just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that when we, when we talk about the way that they suffered, that word suffered is found there in the middle of verse 14. It's also used of those who are afflicted by the evil schemes of those who want to bring shame upon another. And that's exactly what was happening in Judea. The Israelites who rejected our Redeemer Jesus, they wanted to bring shame upon the Israelites who had embraced their Messiah. And in similar fashion... The Gentiles in Thessalonica who continue worshiping their heathen gods, well, they wanted to bring shame upon the Gentiles who were turning to Jesus Christ. And in light of their example, we must understand that it's not uncommon for born-again believers to suffer trials of mockings as the unbelievers around us attempt to bring shame upon those who follow Jesus. And listen, this should come as no surprise because this is exactly what Jesus said would happen to those Who choose to follow him? To prove my point, I would remind you, it's in John chapter 15. There the Lord Jesus declares, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, 
they will keep yours also. Now, as we consider this promise, I'm sure we all recognize that the Lord Jesus was, in fact, persecuted. We know that Jesus was persecuted. And listen, this persecution began when those who hated him, they tried to bring shame upon his name. For example, it's in John chapter 8 where the Pharisees suggested that Jesus was the son of an unfaithful woman. They were calling his lineage into question. And they did this by not only rejecting the claims of Christ's virgin birth, but they were trying to shame his holy name by calling him an illegitimate son. Now they wanted to shame him in order to discredit his ministry. In Mark chapter 14, we also learn that there were Jewish officers who shamed him by spitting upon him after they arrested him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 15, we find the Roman soldiers attempting to shame our Savior as they clothed him with a purple robe, as they mocked his so-called royalty, and they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and then they bowed a knee to him as they mockingly worshipped him. They spat upon him and saluted him, and they just attempted to bring shame upon him. And as we consider how the persecutors of our Savior set out to shame him, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord Jesus simply ignored the shame of those who hated him. Yeah, he disregarded their shame as nothing. And he continued to fulfill his mission. In light of his example, I encourage you to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We have to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We have to look to him as an example of how we should respond to those who attempt to shame us for serving our Savior. I like the way that Paul put it in Hebrews chapter 12. It's there where he declares, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author of And finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Christian, listen, rather than being discouraged, by the unbelievers who might attempt to shame us for serving our Savior, we should simply learn to endure these attacks by remembering how our Savior simply ignored the shame that they tried to uh, use against him. He simply disregarded the shame that came from the sinners who persecuted the author and the finisher of our faith. And while it's true that we should expect this sort of persecution from those who hate the Lord, it's also true that there's no reason for those who follow Jesus to be ashamed. Yeah, they want to shame us. But we don't need to be ashamed. To prove my point, I want to consider something that the Apostle Peter said in his first epistle. So hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. As you make your way to the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, I, I just want to take a moment to remind you about the way that Peter rejoiced the very first time that he was shamed for serving our Savior. This occurred shortly after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon believers and you know, shortly thereafter, they, they went out and started preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And it didn't take long before the apostles were arrested because of their Christ-centered mission and message. 
And after being beaten and then warned about, you know, about preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, then they were released. And it was at that point in time when Peter and the rest of the apostles, they rejoiced. And the reason why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. They suffered shame for the name of Jesus, but they were unashamed. With this in mind, I want to consider the way that the Apostle Peter goes on to encourage us in 1 Peter chapter 4. Look with me there, beginning at verse 12. Here Peter declares, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be, what? Ashamed. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Christian, listen, there should be no doubt that we are going to be reproached for our faith in Jesus Christ. There should be no doubt that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer the shame of persecution, yet at the same time, there's no reason for us to be ashamed. We don't need to be ashamed of our Savior. You see, those who trust in Jesus Christ, we've been set free from the shame of our sins. Remember, Jesus carried our shame there on the cross. So there's nothing to be ashamed of. Not only that, but we've also become the adopted children of God who will enjoy an everlasting inheritance in the presence of our Savior. And with that being the case, there is nothing for us to be ashamed of as we set out to serve our Savior. Will they try to shame us? Yep. There will be unbelievers who will try to shame us. And yet we should remain unashamed. This brings us to our second point, because listen, the, 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 those who persecute Christians, if they can't shame the saints of God, then what's next? Well, they want to shun the saints of God. And to explain what I mean, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul, he's describing the way that the saints of God are shunned for their faith. And if you would, let's back up and begin reading once again at, at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. Here again, Paul declares, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's reminding his readers about the persecutors there in Judea who had called for the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. That's right, they not only persecuted him by accusing him of being an illegitimate son, and they not only persecuted him as they shamed him by spitting upon our Savior, but then they also persecuted him as they called for his crucifixion. 
The shaming wasn't enough. They had to shun him through the sacrifice of the cross. That's right. The persecutors of Christ Jesus weren't satisfied with simply shaming our Savior. No, instead, they wanted to get rid of him altogether in the same way that their forefathers got rid of the prophets before, before him. Now, I should point out that some of the prophets did die in peace. And at the same time, though, many of them became martyrs for their message. Uh, for example, it was actually King Manasseh who slew the prophet Isaiah by sawing him in half with, with a wooden saw. And I'm glad we don't have a graphic for that, for that story. The prophet Amos was tortured by a priest named Amaziah. And then Amaziah's son ended up killing the prophet with a club. The prophet Micah was slain by Joram, the son of Ahab. Several attempts to kill the prophet uh, Jeremiah failed, but in the end, he was actually stoned to death. The prophet Ezekiel was killed in Babylon after rebuking the leader of those who were exiled for the way that he started worshiping idols. And let's not forget that John the Baptist, the, the technically the, the last Old Testament prophet, he was beheaded after challenging King Herod about his sexual immoralities. I like the way that Stephen sums up all of this in Acts chapter 7. It's there where he challenges the religious leaders there in Israel by declaring this. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Wow. Stop beating around the bush, Stephen. What do you really think here? The Israelites were notorious for the way that they persecuted the prophets of God and they killed many of them. And, and so Stephen was spot on with this accusation. And the further proof of his point is found in the fact that they actually stoned Stephen to death. Yeah, you, he said, you stoned the saints of God to death. No, we don't. We're going to prove it. How did they prove it? They stoned Stephen to death. They cried out with a loud voice. They ran at him with one accord. And they had to run because their Honda was broken down. And so they, yeah, they ran at him with one accord. One accord. They cast him out of the city. They stoned him to death. And that's when Stephen became the first Christian martyr, but he wasn't the last. He was the first Christian martyr, but he wasn't the last. And while it's true that many saints have been killed for their faith, we should understand this is something that, that Paul pointed out here in, in our text today as he talked about how they were being persecuted for their testimony. If you would, let's look again here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to direct your attention back to verse 15. Here Paul refers to those who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. They've persecuted us because they do not please God and are contrary to all men. Now, here in the second half of this verse, we learn about the way that Paul and his traveling companions were also being persecuted. 
And just to be clear, the word persecuted here is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are being oppressed with all manner of calamities. And the same Greek Greek word here was also used of those who were driven out and banished for their beliefs. And this was most certainly true of Paul as well as those on his missionary team. As a matter of fact, those who have taken the time to study through the book of Acts, you're well aware of the fact that Paul was chased out of many places and, and, and banished for his beliefs. In this way, those who persecute Christians, they not only want to shame us, but they want to shun us from the social settings that they're trying to control, and they want to shun us because the message of the gospel triggers them. It angers them. That being the case, we shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves being shunned by those who are disturbed by the biblical doctrine of salvation. When we tell someone to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, yeah, this is triggering to many people today. Our desire is to lead them into the love of the Lord, but they accuse us of a hate crime. And they want to shun us. In order to further grasp the point that I'm trying to make here, I want to take another look there at verse 15 where Paul again refers to those who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men. That word contrary. Well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are hostile adversaries. These people are hostile adversaries. The same word is also used of those who are antagonistic to the followers of Jesus Christ. And it's sad to say that the persecutors who, who, who attempt to shun the servants of our Savior are, as Paul put it here, contrary or antagonistic, not to just Christians, but notice, to all men, to all people. Those who shun the saints of God are actually antagonistic to all people. And the reason why is because as they attempt to shame and shun the servants of our Savior, they're actually keeping others from coming to Christ. This was precisely the point that Jesus was making when he rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees. It's in Matthew chapter 23, it's verse 13, where Jesus declares, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's rebuking the religious leaders there in Israel because, number one, they were rejecting their own Redeemer, but at the same time, they were also trying to stop others from entering into the kingdom of God by encouraging them to not trust in Jesus. So they were antagonistic to all people. In this way, they not only shunned our Savior, but... They were also contrary to every person as they tried to convince others that they should also shun the one who alone is able to save us. As we consider their contrarian persecutions, we should take a moment to consider the reason for this antagonism. And with this as the focus, I want to consider something that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. So hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I'd like you to make your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
As you make your way to the second chapter of 2 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that there is a clearly spiritual element to the anger that rises up in the hearts of those who then start persecuting Christians. There's a spiritual element. Because listen, if you stop to ask them, what, what is it about Jesus that makes you so mad? Was it his compassion? Was it his love? Was it the way that he died for the sins of humans? I mean, what, what is it about Jesus that makes you so angry? I remember this is a question that I had to ask myself before I came to, to faith in Christ because when the person who led me to the Lord presented me with a gospel message, it made me mad. I didn't want to hear it. And yet, the common sense rationality that God had uh, given me you know, at the moment of my creation in the womb, at that, you know, I, I had to sit here and, and, and rationalize, why does this message make me so mad? A story about you know, God incarnate who comes and receives the punishment that I deserve so that I can be saved from the wrath of God. I mean, what about that makes me so mad? I, I couldn't explain it. But I understand it as I consider what Paul is writing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Here Paul is helping the Christians in Corinth to understand the immaterial motivations that lead many unbelievers to shun the saints of God. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here. Uh, Look with me there, 2 Corinthians 2, beginning at verse 14. Paul here declares, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, notice, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Here in these verses, we find Paul describing this spiritual aroma that is diffused by the disciples of Christ. To other born-again believers, we smell like the beautiful fragrance of Jesus Christ. And I think you probably recognize what I mean You know, when I say, hey, there's just some times where you meet someone and you don't know they're a Christian, but you know. It's like you just know that there's that there's a relationship with Jesus in, in, their, in their life. And then come to find out as you continue to get to know them that, yeah, they, they are a Christian. But you knew it before you knew it, right? It was like there was just this fragrance about them, this diffusing of the knowledge of Christ from their life. It's a fragrant, sweet-smelling aroma in an in a immaterial sense. But to the unbeliever, Christian. You smell like death. That's what Paul says. You stink. We smell like death to the unbelievers around us. And it's for this reason that many of them have a a motivation that they don't even recognize for why they just don't want to be around us. Yeah, we, we smell like death to them, so they just would rather shun us than to consider why they're so just unwilling to listen to what we have to say. And then there are those who take it a bit further and begin to inflict the pain of persecution in order to just keep us away. 
possible that you've experienced something like this, and if so, I want to assure you that this ought to give us reason to rejoice. To prove my point, I want to consider something that the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. So continue holding your place there in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As you make your way to the fifth chapter of Matthew, I just want to take a, a moment to pose an important question, and the question is this. We ought to search our own lives and ask ourselves, am I a believer who is being shunned for my faith in Jesus Christ? If so, well, you can rejoice in knowing that you are indeed a disciple who is diffusing the fragrance of Christ in every place. Yeah, the unbelievers smell it, though they don't recognize it, but they just want, they want you away as quickly as possible. I want to consider how Jesus describes this here in Matthew chapter 5. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 10, here he declares, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his audience to understand that the believers who are being reviled and persecuted for following him will end up being blessed in the long run. And listen, I'm not talking about Christians who are being persecuted because they're just obnoxious. I'm not talking about Christians who are being persecuted just because they're weird and nobody likes them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being persecuted for the sake of Jesus. I'm talking about those who are persecuted because they want to accomplish the Great Commission. They want to spread the gospel of grace to to the unbelievers around them. The, The Christians who are persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ, Jesus says you're going to be blessed in the long run, so you might as well rejoice today. Those who are shamed and shunned for the sake of our Savior should rejoice because those who patiently persevere every persecution will receive great reward as we stand in the presence of our Savior. If you're currently being shunned for the sake of our Savior, if there are unbelievers who want nothing to do with you because they just don't want to deal with your Christianity, rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. Now this brings us to our third and final point because listen, those who persecute Christians not only want to shame the the saints and shun the saints, but they also want to silence the saints. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here we find Paul. He's describing the way that persecutors try to silence the saints of God. I want to back up and begin reading once again at verse 14. Once again, Paul declares, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins... But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And here in these verses we find Paul. He's reminding the original recipients of this epistle about the way that his persecutors had tried to silence them by forbidding them from speaking to the Gentiles. And and just to be clear here, the word forbidding there, it's found in verse 16. That word forbidding is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who were hindering the great commission of Christ Jesus. 
Simply put, there were those who were persecuting Paul and his, and his companions as they attempted to silence them by preventing them from presenting the gospel message to those who were worshiping you know, heathen gods out in the Gentile world. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered the beginning of verse 16. Here's how they put it. They try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. That's right, there were those who were trying to silence Paul as they set out to stop him from speaking to the Gentiles about Jesus Christ. And it's sad to say that these persecutors, well, they oftentimes resorted to acts of violence in order to silence Paul. For example, it's in Acts chapter 13 where we learn that the Jews who were there in Antioch, they raised up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas as they tried to expel him from their region. And in Acts chapter 14, Luke also tells us about the day when the Jews from Antioch joined up with the Jews from Iconium, and, and then they tried to persuade the multitudes to stone Paul, and then they uh, you know, dragged him out of the city once he appeared to be dead from the stoning. In Acts chapter 17, we find the Jews in Thessalonica gathering a mob from the marketplace as they set out to persecute Paul and his traveling companions. And in Acts chapter 18, we find the Jews there in Achaia raising up and rising up against Paul by bringing him to the judgment seat of this city. And it was there where they tried to convince the Gentile rulers to punish Paul. Finally, in Acts chapter 21, we learn about the day when Paul went back to Jerusalem. And it was at that point in time when they seized Paul. Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and by Acts chapter 23, we find the same religious rulers plotting to kill Paul in order to silence this former Pharisee. As we consider the way that Paul was persecuted by those who were trying to silence the gospel of grace, well, listen, what his persecutors were failing to realize is that they were actually sinning against the Lord. They thought they were serving the Lord, but they were actually sinning against the Lord. The Israelites who were trying to silence the saints of God, they truly believed that they were serving the Lord by shutting down this cult. But Paul says that they were actually filling up the measure of their sins to the limit that the Lord would allow. There's only a a limited amount of sins that the Lord will allow in our lives. And at some point in time, he's going to shut it down. And they they had reached their limits. And it's for this reason that the Lord was ready to to start punishing the religious rulers there in Israel as he raised up the Romans to become the instruments of his holy wrath. This is precisely the point that Paul is making there in the second half of verse 16. Notice again where he informs us that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. I like the way the scholars who created the NIV rendered the Greek in this verse. They put it like this. They always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. I want to remind you here that Paul wrote this letter in 51 AD. And so it stands to reason here that the Lord was already pouring out his wrath, punishing those persecutors by 51 AD. And with this in mind, we should take a moment to ask, well, in what way was God already punishing Paul's persecutors by 51 AD? Well, the chances are Paul was referring to the catastrophic commotion that occurred there in Jerusalem in 49 AD. 
according to Josephus, it was during the feast that is called Passover when uh, more than 20,000 Jews died right there on Temple Mount. It all started when a Roman governor named Cumanus, he decided to dispatch an armed military regiment into the temple of God. And so these armed soldiers, Roman soldiers, were standing there in the colonnades. And, you know, as people showed up for the Passover celebration, uh, you know, he, he was trying to quell what he believed to be an uprising or a revolution. And when the Israelites saw the Roman soldiers, they responded to this regiment of armed Roman soldiers in the temple colonnades with religious rage. And as a result, almost 30,000 Jews died within the chaos and commotion. And as we consider this tragedy, I have no doubt that Paul saw that event as evidence of God's wrath upon his persecutors. Not only that, but listen, this was just a precursor to the Jewish-Roman wars, which began in 66 AD. By 70 AD, the Romans had not only conquered Jerusalem, but they also destroyed the temple. By 136 AD, most of the Jewish population of central Judea was essentially wiped out, killed, sold into slavery, or forced to flee. Without debate, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was punishing his people. And the reason why was because they were trying to silence the servants of our Savior Jesus. Don't take my word for it. I'm not making this up. This is the point that Jesus made in Luke chapter 19. It's there where he declares, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave you in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't know that their redeemer was there with them. They didn't know this was the time of their visitation and they rejected their redeemer. And not only that, but the same religious rulers then became guilty of persecuting the saints of God as they tried to silence the voices of those who went out to spread the gospel of grace. And what they failed to realize as they believed themselves to be servants of God, the fact is that they were only filling up the measure of their sins, which resulted in their destruction, just as Jesus promised. As we consider the way that the Lord punished the people who persecuted Paul, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord has also promised to punish those who try to silence our own evangelistic endeavors. So did he promise persecution for Christians? He did. Did he promise to punish the persecutors as well? You better believe it. To prove my point, I want to consider the way that Paul addresses this in the letter that he sent to the church in Rome. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 12, you see, it's here in the 12th chapter of Romans where we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Rome to realize that it's not our job to punish our persecutors. It's not our job, Christian, to punish our persecutors. No, instead, it's our job to present them with the gospel of grace so that they might repent of their persecutions and trust in Jesus Christ. As for those who continue to attempt to silence the voices of God's servants, well, trust me when I tell you, the Lord knows how to deal with them. I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 14, here he declares, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here in these verses, we find Paul encouraging every believer to bless those who persecute us. That's right, we've been called to bless those who try to shame us. We've been called to bless those who try to shun us. We've been called to bless those who try to silence the servants of our Savior. And I I must confess, for me, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Scriptures. Because listen, it's always easier to, pay, to, to repay evil with evil. It's always easier to get our own revenge. And I don't know about you, but the minute someone crosses me, my mind gets to work and thinking through all the different ways that I can get them back. And yet we're called to bless those who persecute us. Rather than repaying evil for evil, Paul encourages us to overcome evil with good. And listen, in this way, we're actually helping our persecutors to experience the same love that the Lord Jesus demonstrated when he allowed his persecutors to crucify him on that old rugged cross. With this in mind, I want to consider how the Lord Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 5. It's beginning in verse 44 where he declares, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Christian, listen, rather than thinking of ways to exact our revenge on those who persecute us, we ought to instead be looking for ways to reveal the love of the Lord Jesus to those who would silence our voices. In this way, we actually help them to experience the sacrificial love of the Lord as we persevere their persecutions while simultaneously attempting to lead them to Jesus. At the same time, we can also rejoice in knowing that those who continue to fill up the measure of their own sins, they'll eventually reach the limit where the Lord says, enough is enough. And if they won't repent and if they won't trust in Jesus Christ, then the Lord has promised that they're going to receive the righteous wrath that God has promised to pour out on those who persecute his people. And so we don't have to exact our own revenge. Because vengeance belongs to God. And his vengeance is perfect. 
as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to remind you that Paul presented us with the promise of persecution. He's informed us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And as we consider this promise, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I a Christian who is being persecuted by those who want to shame the saints of God? Am I a Christian who is being persecuted by those who want to shun the saints of God? Am I a Christian who is being persecuted by those who want to silence the saints of God? If so, then I encourage you, rejoice. You can rejoice in knowing that those who are being persecuted in these ways, we are believers who are living godly lives in Christ Jesus, because that's what Paul said. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. So if you're suffering persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, then you're a believer who is living a godly life by faith in Jesus Christ. At the same time, listen, if the promise of persecution has yet to affect your life, then the question we really ought to ask is this. Am I failing to live a godly life by faith in Jesus Christ? If you're not being persecuted, then the promise of persecution isn't really impacting your life. Why is that? Is it because you might be failing to diffuse the fragrance of Christ in every place? Remember, the world will love its own. And if you're loved by the world around you, then is it possible because you smell just like every other unbeliever? Now listen, I have no doubt that we would all rather avoid the pain of persecution. If I took an informal survey right now and said, who wants to you know, experience persecution? You know, I doubt any hands would go up. Nobody wants to be persecuted, amen? You didn't answer because you were afraid of persecution. We would all rather avoid the pain of persecution as for this reason that many Christians do their best to hide their beliefs from those who might persecute them. Many Christians who want to fly under the radar and not draw any attention about their faith because they know that if the people around them find out that they're believers that they're going to end up being persecuted so they try to avoid it. This is based on on that decision driver that we call self-preservation. For most of us, self-preservation is the number one decision driver. But it shouldn't be for the believer. Knowing that self-preservation is a decision driver which will motivate many of us to avoid the promise of persecution, I encourage every Christian to place the decision driver of being submissive servants to Jesus above self-preservation. Our number one decision driver should be to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And, and even if, yeah, even if God is calling us to go out into an area of the world where we're sure to be persecuted. Even if that means that the Lord is calling us to go into the workplace and be a bold witness for Jesus there, knowing that we're eventually going to get fired. Even if what that means is that the Lord Jesus is calling us to go to our family and reach those unbelievers who we know are going to shun us and shame us and silence us. 
The decision to be a servant of our Savior should be the number one decision driver and then let everything else follow from there. And yeah, even if what that means is that we're going to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. I encourage every Christian in closing, let's become those submissive servants who are willing to suffer for the sake of our Savior so that we can help the unbelievers around us to understand and even see a glimpse of the sacrificial love of the Lord. And in this way, we will help our enemies to embrace the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ as he helps us to endure the promise of persecution. Let's pray.